You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our online service. My name is Richard. For those of you who might not know who I am, and um, yeah, just following on, I, it was such a great celebration moment last Sunday at our uh, dedication service, well, our pop-up worship service in which we dedicated uh, 10 babies, which was awesome. And so I want to ask you to stay tuned. We've got some very exciting news and announcements to, about our next pop-up worship service. And so uh, stick around for that too. I think we'll be very excited to hear some news and updates with that. And so, um, yeah, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts called Unstoppable. And so we're uh, journeying through Acts. Acts is a long book. And so we're taking it in kind of seasons. We're in season two. And we've been looking really at some incredible stories of how people have encountered Jesus, encountered the gospel, and it's changed their lives. And so in, in kind of Christian speak, we talk about those as conversion stories. And so today what I want to do is uh, we're going to be coming to a very conversion story that really is a turning point in the book of Acts, the turning point for the church and really a turning point for the mission. And I'm not over dramatizing that. It really is a significant uh, account in scripture. But before we get there, um, this uh, this headline really captured my attention earlier in the week. Um, I read it. MIA says she had a vision of Jesus is now a, and is now a born-again Christian. Now, for those of you who have no idea who MIA is, she's a rapper and a performing artist um, that was born in London, was raised by Sri Lankan Tamil parents who raised her as Hindu. And so you might be familiar with her hit song, um, Paper Planes, that was released in 2008. I think it appeared on the movie Slumdog Millionaire, if you've ever seen that movie. Anyways, in a recent conversation with Zane Lowe from Apple Music One, she said that she had a vision of Jesus in 2017 that Convinced her to become a Christian. And in her own words from this interview, she says, Since then, my head has been in a totally different place. Being a Tamil and being a Hindu, I was very comfortable that I'd arrived finding myself, which is, I think, going to be weird for America to process. But I had a vision and I saw the vision of Jesus Christ. It turned my world upside down because everything I thought and believed was no longer the case. And so from MIA in the 21st century all the way to the 1st century, we continue to see God show up and encounter people, the most unexpected people in some of the most unexpected ways. And so we're going to continue with that today. And so we're going to be looking at another encounter, um, and it's an encounter with a man called Cornelius. Now, this account is the longest narrative in Acts. It's 66 verses from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to 11, verse 18. We're not going to read all 66 verses, don't worry. Um, and it highlights the significance of what we're about to read. Now, despite Jesus being very clear that his good news, his gospel, was to go to all nations, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all nations, up until this point, the the, Jew, the church is still very Jewish. It's had a few people that have come in, but it's still very Jewish. And so this is why this story of conversion of Cornelius, and I'm going to introduce you to Cornelius just now, and his household is so significant. So I'm going to try to sum it up, and then we're going to read a little bit of the end of it. So the first scene, you can probably divide these into seven scenes, if you will, seven seven scenes. The first scene is enter Cornelius. We're told that Cornelius is a God-fearing man. He's a Gentile. He's a part of the, the Roman army. He's a centurion. He has leadership over um, soldiers. But it says that he's a God-fearing man. It says that he's doing what he can and prays, gives alms, kind of trying to uh, practice the Jewish faith as best he could as a Gentile. And so God speaks to him, comes to him in a vision. 
sends a messenger, an angel to him in a vision and says, I want you to go call for this guy called Peter. And he tells him where he is, gives him a GPS location. Here we go. Here we go. Go. Scene two, at the very same time, we find Peter. And Peter's hanging about. He's, uh, it's around about lunchtime and he's sitting up on top of this roof and he falls into a trance and God gives him a vision. And it's a very peculiar vision. It's like this blanket comes down as all these animals that in the Jewish uh, ceremonial laws were unclean. And the voice says, rise, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter's disgusted. He's offended. Not, of course I'm not going to do that. Like, I, you know, I'm a good Jewish man. And, and so three times this vision appears to Peter and the voice comes back with these decisive words, what God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, if God's saying this is okay, it's okay. And so we don't, it kind of washes over us, this is weird, but if you were a Jewish person, this is unfathomable. To dietary laws, they weren't just some peculiar culinary habits. This was part of the identity of the Jewish people. This was what set them apart. This spoke to them about the holiness of God in certain, avoiding certain foods and that kind of thing. And so all of a sudden, that's being rocked at the foundation. Scene three, Cornelius sends men to go call for this Peter. And so as Peter's kind of trying to make sense of this vision, there's a knock on the door. Guess who it is? It's his three Gentiles. Kind of interesting that three times this vision happened. Now three Gentiles come and knock on the door and ask him for Peter. And so Peter's supposed to be getting this message. People, not just food, but people that you'd formerly regarded as uncommon, I mean, as common and unclean and separate from you, you're now no longer to treat them like that. This is radical. This is we fail to maybe grasp the gravity, but Peter's going through a radical revolution right now. But he goes with them to his credit. So scene four, Peter arrives at Cornelius's house a day later, and there he finds Cornelius is ready, and he's gathered his household. He's gathered people to hear what Peter has to say. Scene five, Peter preaches the gospel. Now, what is really interesting, and we'll expound upon this a little bit later, is this is a gospel Peter's preached many times, right? This is a gospel that we see earliest already in Acts 2. He's preached this gospel. He believes this gospel. This gospel's changed his life. But Peter's coming to a deeper understanding of this very same gospel because he starts, he says, I'm now understanding that God shows no partiality. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just a, right there, just a pause, like sometimes we're just so familiar with the gospel and we believe it and understand it, but it penetrates and impacts our lives in deeper layers. And so to Peter's credit, he's open to this gospel not saying, hey, this gospel makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Now, you might have cognitively believed it. Jesus had certainly preached it. But now you're about to live this out in a different way. And so that's a great just insight like, wow. Uh, scene six what we can call is the Gentile Pentecost. Basically, the Holy Spirit doesn't even let Peter finish his sermon, falls on these Gentiles in such a way that they obviously can see that now the Gentiles have been included in the kingdom of God. The Gentiles have been included in the people of God. Again, radically mind-shifting for the Jewish people to conceive. Because oftentimes you had to convert to Judaism, you had to go through the rituals that, and then become a follower of Jesus. But Peter's seeing something totally different being played out. They're not circumcised, they haven't been baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit is falling upon them just like he did with the earliest Jewish believers. And then scene seven is where we're going to pick up the story. Peter's in trouble <laughs> with the church back in Jerusalem because they hear Peter's partying and hanging out with Gentiles. And like, Come back and tell us. And Peter's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 11, verse 1 to 8, is we're going to, 1 to 18, we're going to read this, and it's going to kind of summarize the story we've just gone through there. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that sounds like a fun party, <laughs> criticized him, saying, he went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter again, sorry, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up uh, again into heaven. Uh, verse 11, Behold, at the very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said, that this gospel is to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, but then it's to go to Judea and Samaria, and we've seen that pattern happen, and now to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles, that this gospel is for all people. This gospel makes no partiality, no distinction. All need to hear this good news. And so Luke has taken us on this journey, the writer of Acts. That's who is telling us about these stories. And he's taken us out of Jerusalem. And along the way, he's recounted significant accounts of people encountering this good news, this gospel. We've seen how the Jewish crowd, right at the beginning of scoffers, kind of mockers, turned into Jesus followers in Jerusalem, became that early church, mostly of Jewish Christians. And then we saw earlier as well that despised the despised Samaritans, they were beholden with witchcraft, and Simon the magician turned to Jesus the Messiah. Then we heard a couple of weeks ago about this Ethiopian eunuch, how he was reading uh, Isaiah, and Philip comes along and says, do you understand what you're reading? Tells him about Jesus. He became saved and gets baptized. Then we heard um, from a raging, violent soul terrorizing the early Christians, and then becoming one. And now we hear about a Roman centurion and his Gentile household adopted into the church. And so we see these very dramatic accounts of conversion by the power of the Spirit. And so what I would like to do is just to take a, a step back and using the Cornelius and Peter one as a primary one, but also factoring in these other ones and see what are they trying to tell us? What is Luke getting across to us with these? And so we're going to call this divine conversion because really conversion is a divine act. It's, it's God who saves us. But as we'll see that each conversion experience 
is so unique, right? And so I think for us in the 21st century, particularly us in the West, we're so quick to want to find out what's the pattern, what's the principle, what's the quickest, most efficient way to get the, the outcome. And so we don't see that. Uh, really, we see very different ways that God encounters different people. The work of the Spirit takes a variety of forms, leads to a variety of responses, and is very context-specific. We need to remember that. You know, I, what I've often said is Jesus is the only way to God, right? We affirm that. We, we actually, the words of Jesus told us that today. Jesus is the only way to God. But there are many, many, many ways to Jesus. We must always remember that. That said, there are similarities around the conversion accounts that we should take note of. Okay, Yes, they're unique, but there are some commonalities. And we're going to look at a few of them today. And particularly, I'm going to highlight four. The first one is conversion and partnership. There's God doing a work, but there's God also in partnership with us. So the hero of the drama in these accounts, and especially in the Peter and Cornelius one, is not Peter, and it's not Cornelius, but it's this God who's so relentless in pursuing and so gracious in pursuing us that he finds a way, even in the midst of human resistance, and let's call it out, prejudice. Peter and the Jewish church still have a prejudice, a racism towards the Gentiles that was deeply embedded in them as the Jewish people. And so God chooses to include us in his work of saving and converting people. We see that God partnered with Philip to go to the Samaritans, to go to the Ethiopian eunuch. God used a man named Ananias to reach out to Saul. And now God uses Peter to reach out to Cornelius and the Gentile world. And so even in this story, we see an incredible supernatural activity and kind of like, you know, flashback to MIA and having a vision of Jesus. Like God still comes to people in dramatic ways and supernatural ways. He comes to Cornelius in a supernatural vision. He comes to Peter in a supernatural vision. We see the receptivity of Cornelius in his household, the Holy Spirit preparing their hearts already to hear what Peter was going to say. But isn't it interesting that God does all that, appears in such supernatural and says, I want you to go and I want this man now to come and tell you something. So God's supernaturally using very natural means. So we see Peter being available, Peter being obedient, and Peter having been able to articulate the gospel to these people. So we see a beautiful partnership that God could have preached the gospel in his vision to Cornelius in his household, but chose not to. God can save people without our help. He's God, but he chooses not to. He chooses to use you and I. Why? There's probably a myriad of reasons, but one that stands out very obviously in this account at least, is that in doing that, something's happening to Peter just as much as it's happening to Cornelius. Now, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but the conversion story in this account is there's two conversions that are critically and equally important here. Not just the conversion of Cornelius and the Gentiles, but of Peter too. And if Peter isn't involved in that process, he's not going to have that conversion experience. He's not going to be confronted with where the gospel still needs to penetrate and go deeper into his life. And so firstly, let's remember in all of these, we've seen a beautiful partnership. And let's make it very abundantly clear. God does the heavy lifting. But God doesn't do it alone. God doesn't do his work alone. He invites us in to be involved in the process of having people hear the good news and receive the good news. So conversion and partnership might be 
good time for you to reflect as you think about this message is perhaps there's people in your lives that sometimes we don't know what God is doing in people's lives, but we're to move in faith and obedience and trust. And you see that in Peter, as much as this might have been really shocking to him and offensive to him, at least he's available and willing to step out and trust God that God knows what he's doing. Secondly, conversion and beginning well, the essential ingredients to good conversions. Now, each conversion is beautiful. It's unique. There's a mystery to it. And so in some ways, we want to just like leave it. Let's not dissect it. Why would you want to dissect it, Richard? But let's use an analogy. Soccer, right? Soccer, beautiful game. The beautiful game of soccer. No two soccer games are the same, right? There's no two games that are identical. No two games that are the same. But in every soccer game, there are commonalities. In fact, there are essential ingredients that make it a soccer game that's different from a cricket, that's different from rugby, right? That defines what that means. And that doesn't detract from its beauty, but allows for its beauty in the beautiful game. We know we're watching a soccer game when we have certain ingredients at play. And we can distinguish and say, ah, that's soccer. That's not football. That's not rugby. That's not this. And so in the same way, we can see the uniqueness of conversions, but as we begin to get under the hood of them, we begin to see some critical elements or ingredients. Ingredients is a good analogy to use because in baking, for instance, each ingredient is distinct, but when you put it all together, it's inseparable, and they're all essential. But we don't focus on the ingredients with the end product. We just marvel at that chocolate mousse cake we just made, and we enjoy it, right? We don't distinct it, but make no mistake, there are certain essential things that need to go in to make a chocolate mousse cake. Okay, so if you're tracking, that's what we're trying to do. Could we get under the hood, get a little bit technical here, and bear with me, but it's important because sometimes if we have no idea what conversion is about, then we have no idea how to affirm someone in their conversion account. We have no idea how to distinguish a good conversion or a bad conversion. We know how important it is to start well in the journey of faith. And so if we have this idea of some of these ingredients, then we can help people start well in their faith. And so there are many smart people have done a lot of work in this area. And generally, the essence of it is two things. It's just belief and repentance. But it's more than that as well. And so the uh, the work I love, who someone who's done extensive work, this is actually a fellow Canadian. His name is Gordon T. Smith. was a professor at Regent. He's now at Ambrose University in Calgary. And uh, we were assigned his book called Beginning Well, part of my master's program a few years back. And he did a deep dive, I mean a deep dive into conversion. He looked at scripture. He surveyed scripture. He looked at autobiographies of people throughout the ages, of testimonies of people who have come to Christ. He's gone through all the different theological strands of conversion, Catholic, Protestant, Reformed, Evangelical, and he pops out and distills some really helpful elements and essences of what a good conversion is and a good foundation to begin the journey of faith well. I'm going to go through them very quickly, but I think it could be very helpful. And so first, the first four is actually seven, and the first four are all internal aspects. Number one, it's called belief. This is the intellectual component. In other words, certain truths need to be understood and believed. Certain things, specifically about Jesus, specifically about our need for Jesus, need to be understood in the um, in the the, the recipe of a conversion. Secondly, repentance. This is the penitential component. In other words, remorse or rejection or a sorrow of the way of sin in our lives, right? There needs to be some level of that remorse that grips us. Thirdly, is trust and assurance 
of forgiveness. This is the emotional component that the grace of God is hitting our hearts and it's resulting in an emotional response, a, a trust in Jesus, bringing about an assurance that I've been cleansed and forgiven, that God is satisfied with the work of Jesus on my behalf and leads to oftentimes a sense of joy in that moment. And then fourthly, commitment. This is the volitional or your will component. In other words, this is where we have a changing of loyalties and allegiances that we're now deciding and committing to this Jesus, committing to follow him. And so we look at these are all internal aspects. But now there's three external actions that support and complement the internal. In fact, we see a lot of this in the book of Acts. Number five, water baptism. This is the sacramental component. In other words, Baptism is an identification and then also a representation. So we're identifying with Jesus, not just in his death, but in his resurrection. And then we're saying, I'm with him. I'm representing him. That's why we love to do public water baptisms, because it's a public declaration of some of these things that have been happening. I'm with him. I identify with him. I'm no longer the same Richard I was. My old man is in the in the tank there, and I'm raised again to new life in Jesus Christ. Number six, receiving the gift of the Spirit, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the critical component to our conversion. And then lastly, number seven, and this is the clincher, and this is the one I think might um, get a bit of pushback. He says incorporation into Christian community. In other words, this is the corporate component. Now, in our obsessively individualistic and subjective world, we should take note of how often a communal aspect is at play in the conversion accounts and acts. And so, yes, uh, making a decision to follow Jesus is incredibly personal, but God calls you into a body. God calls you into a people. And so, that's a critical component, I think, that's gotten undermined or lost, particularly in the evangelical world, where it's just like, hey, raise your hand, pray this prayer, and you're off. Now, I don't deny that God can do that and change and save a person, but uh, sometimes we make we, we minimize it and reduce it. We're asking the wrong question. It's not what is the minimum requirement I need to be saved. It should be what is the thing that I need? What, what foundation needs to be laid in order for me to progress well as a follower of Jesus? Gordon Smith goes on to say these are elements, these seven elements of conversion that each person will experience in a different way. And in a different sequence, they're not chronological sometimes, reflecting the unique manner in which the Spirit of God is at work in his or her life. And so there's a uniqueness about how those internal and external actions take place. But we can use those internal and external, those seven ingredients, as a way to look at our own lives, as a way to help and look at other people's lives. Is this a good foundation? Is this person understanding? Is, he, is this person fully, un, fully understanding what it means to be saved um, and willing to go public, willing to get into a Christian community to affirm it? And so number three, so conversion and partnership, conversion and beginning well. Number three is conversion and change that the goal of conversion is life transformation. And so Acts reminds us time and again that conversions are stories of beginnings, not the end goal. Right? And sometimes we can make it the end goal just by getting people saved, but it's just the beginning of your journey, a beginning of your walk, a lifelong walk 
of the Christian journey, not its final destination. It's also a reminder that conversion is an ongoing lifestyle of change. And so sometimes our language isn't helpful in this regard. When were you saved? Well, you were saved, but you're also being saved, and one day you will be saved. It's like, you're not that good that you're one act of saving. You know, we need saving regularly. And so this is where some of our language doesn't become helpful. You know, when did you make a decision for Christ? I mean, making a decision for Christ is good, but every day we need to make a decision to follow Jesus, right? Every day we need to realign our allegiance to him. Every day we need to remind ourselves that we're forgiven and cleansed. Every day we need to remind ourselves that we need areas in our lives to repent of. Um, Will Willimon, his uh, commentary on Acts was incredibly helpful as I was looking through it. So I want to, it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's really good. He says this, David Steinmetz notes that the Protestant reformers were so convinced that sin is so deep-rooted in human thinking and willing that the gospel is so demanding and different that only a lifetime of conversion can change us into the new creations God has in mind for us. The modern evangelical notion that conversion is an instantaneous momentary phenomenon is not rooted in the thought of the reformers, nor we might add in the thought of Luke in the book of Acts. Presumably, we never become too old, too adept at living the Christian life to be exempt from the need for more conversion, additional tuning, turning. Conversion is a process more than a moment. And so come back to Peter and Cornelius, and oftentimes when we read this, it is about the dramatic conversion of Cornelius and their, and arguably now representation of the Gentile world being opened up and receptive to the gospel, and they're included in the church. And absolutely, make no mistake, that's what it's about. But equally important in this account is the conversion of Peter. Peter goes through a dramatic conversion. He's a converting away from his prejudice of seeing the Gentiles through one filter. And now God's saying, no, you need to see these people through a different, entirely different set of lenses. And so often I think the challenge and struggle with many Christians is they get stuck. They get bored. They get lethargic in the walk, in their walk with God. Why? It's because they forget that they're in need of converting, that they're in need of saving ongoing. Not just when you were five years old and prayed a prayer by your bedside. Not when you were at that youth camp in your teenage years. Not when you were at the university campus. Those are all critical and important moments. I don't undermine any of that. But it's a lifetime of conversion that we need. Our need is so deep and the gospel is so deep. It's a lifetime of being converting into the glorious uh, new person that God has for you. Donna Barber says it beautifully like this. He says, though conversion may be pinpointed to a moment, salvation is a process that continues over a lifetime. I am still being saved from old ways of thinking and behaving, and I'm coming to new understandings, to new life. The mission of God doesn't go forward unless Peter has a conversion, just like Cornelius. The mission of God stops dead in his tracks if Peter doesn't have a conversion. If the Jewish church doesn't have that conversion, the mission of God doesn't move forward. And so let me just speak to the Christians, for the long-standing Christians. Where perhaps are we preventing the mission of God going forward because we're stuck in old thinking that God maybe wants to challenge us? We're stuck in unconverted ways that God wants to present to us new ways of moving ahead. And so let's take that to heart. Let's look at this and not just say, hey, uh, Cornelius, these guys, they need to see Jesus. Yes, they need Jesus, but so does Peter. So do you, so do I. And then lastly, let's come back to 
unescapably in all these accounts, conversion and Christ. Central to any conversion is Jesus. I know this might sound obvious, but it's so very true. The same gospel must come to all people. Yes, we need contextualization. Yes, we need to take cognizance of ways and languages that that relate to people. But let's make no mistake, conversion is about Jesus, a person, not principles, not a religion, not this or that. It's about Jesus. In all the preaching of Peter, and you'll see it in, in Paul as well, they have different ways of communicating the gospel, but they will always come back to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, he is now Lord. And because he's Lord, a response is required from us. They'll say it in different ways and pattern different, but they always bring it back to the centrality of Jesus. Lived a life, taught some stuff, died, significance of that, rose from the grave, and then now he is Lord of all creation. And because he is Lord, we need to respond in kind to that. So coming to faith requires us that. And so as I close here today, Uh, There are probably two conversions that are needed. Firstly, maybe you've never fully put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're like Cornelius. Maybe you're seeking. Maybe you have ideas of a God out there, but you haven't quite connected all the dots. Maybe here's your moment where the dots, dots can be connected for you. That Jesus truly does love you. That God does truly want to save you and help you. And so I invite you to really pray a simple prayer of that of allowing Jesus come. And know that that's the beginning of a long journey ahead of you, that brothers and sisters in Christ will want to come alongside you. And so maybe it's a Cornelius conversion that some of you are needing today. And I would say for the vast majority watching this, for us, we're not exempt. Maybe there's a Peter conversion that's needed in our lives today. I don't know what that might be for you. Maybe it's prejudice. Maybe it's racism. Maybe it's something totally different. But I don't want you to feel like this is a message for people who need you. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need a lifetime of conversion. We need to continually see our need to being saved. Otherwise, we grow stagnant and the mission gets stalled in our lives and as a church community. And I think the prophetic timing of these kind of accounts of conversion um, are so uh, in tune for us as we emerge from a worldwide pandemic, as we begin to make sense of all that's gone on, as this incredible disruption that we've experienced, there's still uncertainty and disruption on the horizon, that we have got to be a people that's malleable and changeable in the hands of God, not stuck in our ways, not stuck in old minds and thinking that would prevent us from going to certain people, from doing certain certain things in the name of tradition and religion. So Peter thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was being a good to saying no to these things. At one stage, that was a good law, but it no longer applied. You know, Jesus had spoken about that in, in his gospel. He had, he had declared things were clean. That This wasn't new to them, but they had failed to really live it out. And so sometimes we've heard so many things but it hasn't really taken root and lived out and so I wonder if there's a conversion that you and I need, that the gospel needs to take another converting part of our lifestyles and so I invite you in that and so I want to pray um, but I really ask you as we go into a song with Jacob just now to invite the spirit to to really ask you what is your specific response today and so Father I thank you for these incredibly um, encouraging stories of you showing up in unexpected people's lives, God. It's amazing that so many times we think, oh, this person is so cut off, that person will never, could never be a Christian. And yet you just time and again blow us away, that you come to people in the 
the Middle East. It's through visions and dreams. You come to people who are pop stars like MIA and visions and dreams. You come to many people in ordinary ways and in ways like this of just a simple message of, of your gospel and your goodness. But I pray today, every person watching, God, that they truly would encounter and experience and be captivated by your love, God, by your beauty, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. God, would you come and convert us where we need to be converted, that we too could experience a divine conversion for your glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.